X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, April 28th. This moment needs all of us. We need your voice, your support, and your passion to make Portland a better place. Help us meet this moment and emerge stronger than ever. Not all of us can make a donation, but for those of us who can spare $15 per month for a cultural institution like X-Ray FM, you are doing your community a favor. Invest in that community now by calling us at 503-233-X-Ray. That's 503-233-9729 or go online at xray.fm slash donate. We appreciate your support. Today, back in the day on April 28, 1854, Southern Oregon's first newspaper was published. The short-lived paper was called the Umqua Weekly Gazette. It was Oregon's eighth newspaper and the first south of Salem. Oregon's first newspaper was the satirical rag colorfully titled Flumgudgeon Gazette and Bumblebee Budget. It appeared almost 10 years earlier in 1845. The Umqua Gazette, while slightly more serious, still provided ample old-timey entertainment. Its first editorial reads as follows. In launching forth our little bark on the waves of public opinion and unfurling our sheet to the breeze, we trust that one and all will come forward and extend to us not only kindness and lenity, but the necessary support requisite to keep our boat afloat and in proper trim. Today, back in the day on April 28, 1953, Kim Gordon was born. She's best known as the cool and restrained bassist and sometimes vocalist for the alt-rock band Sonic Youth. As a member of Sonic Youth, she helped define the kind of aloof, noisy, shoegazing, pedal-heavy music that forever changed underground rock in the late 80s and early 90s. In addition to being a towering figure in rock history and an icon for many female musicians, Gordon is also an accomplished visual artist. She founded the L.A. clothing label X-Girl and even had a small stint acting in films like I'm Not Here and Last Days, directed by Portland's own Gus Van Zandt. Kim Gordon published a memoir in 2015 titled Girl and a Band. And in October 2020, she published a book of photos, essays, lyrics, and other ephemera titled No Icon. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Joanne Jewell, executive editor of Street Roots. X-Ray. And now it's time for today's quick six local rundown. 15 Oregon counties are moving back into extreme risk COVID-19 restrictions. Governor Kate Brown announced the new set of restrictions yesterday. The counties affected are Baker, Clackamas, Columbia, Crook, Deschutes, Grant, Jackson, Josephine, Klamath, Lane, Lynn, Marion, Polk, Wasco, and Multnomah. That includes most of the Portland area, but not Washington County. Under the new restrictions, restaurants and bars have to shut down indoor dining. Gyms, movie theaters, bowling alleys, and indoor swimming pools can't have more than six people. Long-term care facilities are restricting indoor visits except in certain circumstances. Counties will be an extreme risk for a maximum of three weeks. 
If numbers continue to rise after that, the OHA will evaluate and advise the governor on how to proceed. The governor's office did say that counties could shift back down to high risk after a week if statewide hospitalizations drop below 300 or don't continue to surge at 15% per week. Your daily dose of data. Yesterday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 740 new COVID cases. That brings the state to a total of 182,040. Yesterday, there were two new deaths. There have been a total of 2,488 deaths. As of yesterday, Oregon had the fastest rate of acceleration in COVID cases in the country. New cases have grown in Oregon by 54% over the past two weeks, compared to just 20% nationwide. Hospitalizations are up 39% compared to just 2% nationwide. The criteria for entering extreme risk as a county entails having an infection rate of over 200 cases for every 100,000 people if you are a large county of over 30,000. If you are considered a small or medium county, that's less than 30,000 people. Having more than 60 cases or a positivity rate of over 10% would get you into extreme risk. Klamath County leads large counties with 787 cases per 100,000 over the past two weeks. Clackamas was at 245, Multnomah at 221. Washington County managed to stay in high risk by only having an infection rate of 192 cases per 100,000 residents. The faculty strike at the Oregon Institute of Technology continues. On Monday, students showed up for classes and teachers walked out. In some cases, the teachers didn't show at all. The faculty and the school have been negotiating about wages, workload, and benefits for over 16 months. There are 158 faculty workers at the OIT's Wilsonville Remote Campus. 97% voted on the matter of striking, and 92% of that group voted to strike. The school says they are staying open by using adjunct staff, deans, and other qualified staff that isn't striking to teach the classes that professors walked out on. Negotiations are scheduled to resume today. This is the first-ever faculty strike at a public university in the state of Oregon. The Oregon House passed a series of nine measures that would hold police accountable statewide. The bills are designed to regulate the actions of officers once they're on the job and to get those who aren't fit to be cops out of the uniform. One measure requires applicants to answer questions about their opinions on race and diversity. The police agencies would then be required to, quote, rigorously evaluate them. Some of the other measures include requiring police to investigate gender-based hate crimes, requiring police to report misconduct by colleagues within 72 hours, requiring the officers be trained in CPR and other life-saving measures, and to call for emergency medical assistance if someone goes into medical distress while being restrained. Other aspects include limiting how police can use the interfering with an officer charge, limiting the release of booking photos, and penalties for doxing, the practice of releasing people's personal information with the intent to stalk, harass, or injure them. A notable measure that is a direct result of last summer's protests would require crowd control officers in cities larger than 150,000 people to have their names clearly visible on their uniforms. According to Representative Mark Meek, quote, 
Knowing an officer's name allows the community to view them as a real person rather than just a uniform. University of Portland will require all students, faculty, and staff to be vaccinated against COVID-19 for the fall semester. Faculty and staff must submit proof of vaccination by August 1st. Students must have proof by September 1st. Medical or non-medical exemptions can be requested. This comes at the recommendation of the UP COVID-19 Vaccination Task Force, a group made up of students, faculty, and staff that was formed at the beginning of the year. The committee is headed by Dr. Casey Shillam, Dean of the School of Nursing. More information about the submission process will be released at a later date, according to school officials. Lewis and Clark and Willamette University in Salem will also have vaccine requirements before classes begin. And finally, some good news. The Portland Timbers take on Club America in the CONCACAF Champions League quarterfinals tonight. Club America is a legendary Mexican team. They've won Mexico's Liga MX 13 times since their inception in 1916 and 10 CONCACAF titles overall. To put it in perspective, they've got 4.1 million Twitter followers and 2.8 million on Instagram. That's more than Major League Soccer has as a league on either platform. The Timbers are in an intense stretch of five matches in 16 days. Their last game was a 2-1 win over the Houston Dynamo in their MLS home opener. Portland will be down a couple of key players with goalie Steve Clark and forward Jeremy Abobisi out with thigh strain. And Sebastian Blanco is still not ready to return from ACL surgery. The first leg of their two-match set kicks off tonight at 7.30 at Providence Park. The second leg will be next Wednesday, May 5th at the Estadio Azteca in Mexico City. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next is Executive Editor of Street Roots, Joanne Jewell, with insights into wildfire legislation being considered in Salem. Wildfire season has started again. Things are looking particularly dangerous in Klamath County in southern Oregon, which is experiencing its worst drought in decades. Wildfire legislation is more important than ever, but whose voices are being left out of the conversation in Salem? Here to tell us more is Joanne Zuhl, executive editor of Street Roots. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. Uh, Can you give us a brief overview of the wildfire legislation that's been proposed this year? Yeah. So, I, you know, it seems like what wildfire season is starting all over again. It never ends, does it? And, and yeah. uh, you know, we all, I'm sure, remember last year's terrible wildfires. They were, uh, you know, one of the worst on record. And Portland was, you know, engulfed in smoke. More than a million acres burned across the state. And, of course, as you were mentioning, as a result, a slew of bills looking at wildfire prevention management um, and recovery are now working their way through the legislature. Now, the piece that Brian Oster has done for Street Roots looks at what is missing from these, and that is the voice of the tribal communities across Oregon. Um, This is significant because the Native American community has been engaging in land management practices for centuries that have prevented uncontrolled wildfires. Uh, they often uh, most predominantly use prescribed burns, and that's the act of intentionally burning the land every few years under controlled conditions to prevent, you know, the fuel buildup that we often hear about 
and promote fire-adapted ecosystems. Um, it's been so effective, actually, recently the Coquille Indian Tribe and the Cow Creek Band of the Umpqua Indians uh, were nationally recognized for their forest management systems, and they have sovereignty to manage their forest lands as they see fit. However, it, that, that uh, national recognition doesn't provide funding or engage them in any statewide land use planning or wildfire uh, prevention efforts. And uh, here in Oregon, despite talk of implementing more tribal knowledge into the state's practices, it's really just been a matter of trust at this point, and that continues even into this 2021 legislature. Um, while not formally excluded, the Oregon legislature has left tribes out of this year's legislative language, essentially. And, you know, in the words of Danny Santos, he's the interim director for the Legislative Commission on Indian Services, uh, the notion that non-tribal actors, in this case the Forestry Department, will take up tribal interests um, simply has just not borne out by history. So it's a real concern that the efforts of tribal communities are, are once again being left out, even though they have, um, you know, a proven track record, and instead we have business and government interests leading the way again. So, so that, I guess that's, that's the question that's forming in my mind. If, if tribal knowledge is being left out, whose interests are being considered? Right, exactly. So there is uh, one of the bills, House Bill 2273, seeks to establish a forestry task force um, but it doesn't specify the inclusion of tribal representatives other than this very collective category of tribal slash environmental slash economic interests. And its voting membership, as prescribed in this bill, is otherwise dominated by government and business interests. And so it's a, it's a real concern on who's, you know, dictating what happens to our forests. And also a concern if you want to look back historically that year after year after year, here we are now even approaching what could be even a worse wildfire season. You know, have have the smartest minds been around the table all these years, I suppose, is the question <laughs> to be asked. So, so with, I mean, there's, there's danger in pr- prioritizing business interests, and it, it, the tribal knowledge continues to be left out. If, if, if we start to to get input from a more diverse uh, set of of um, interests, how long does it take to transform uh, our our forests? Well, I think that's a question that the people who aren't at the table are are willing to find out what the answer is. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. they you know the the issue isn't just tribal governments want, okay, put a line item in there that we get some funding for something to do the work that we're doing. It's more that, like, bring us around the table to talk about this. Make us part of the discussion. Uh, and that's where I think a lot of the hurt is, that they have not been involved in in the discussion, in the development of these proposals to address, you know, what are, are now just absolutely out-of-control wildfire seasons um, that that are just untenable, right? We cannot continue forward at this trajectory. So, you know, the hope is that moving forward, perhaps there will be a seat at the table. There will be more comprehensive discussions to try something different, um, to maybe shift where the um, the interests lie mm-hmm. and, and see what happens. And um, 
um, you know, to ignore a section of the of the state's population um, is to our own detriment. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, this is Andy and Julia. We're talking with Joanne Zuhl from Street Roots about uh, uh, wildfire legislation in 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 uh, the uh, Oregon legislature. Uh, are there tribes in Oregon that have their own independent forest management systems, and and have they been more or or less successful than what's been going on uh, f- uh, as dictated by the 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 state practices? Well, yes, like I was mentioning that the Coquille Indian tribe and the Cow Creek Band of the Umpqua Indians are both, they were recently nationally recognized for their forest management systems. Um, uh, not too long ago, uh, we had a story in the paper about the, the efforts here in the state of Oregon to do these prescribed burns, to just really be hands-on, paying attention to what's happening in the forest. And it was pretty fascinating that it's not only just reducing the fuel, but it really does create an ecosystem that is much better adapted to, you know, fire seasons and, um, you know, what could happen. And so it's not such a buildup as we've seen. Uh, so there's, there's a, a real acknowledgement nationally and even statewide among what people are saying about the efforts among tribal communities to do this kind of work that they have been doing. But it's now a matter of it actually breaking through the doors. I shouldn't say that in this this time of this climate, uh, you know, walking through the doors of the state legislature to, you know, really become part of policy, uh, because that's where, you know, action really happens. Well, and, and, and what a, what a challenge to, um, you know, I feel like, uh, Oregon, uh, Oregonians are perhaps more connected to how our, uh, forests are, are managed, um, and so uh, our expectations of what a forest looks like, what forest management right. looks like, um, might need to really be be challenged. Um, yeah, I mean, for one example, um, so House Bill 2795, this would give $5 million um, from the general fund to support, quote-unquote, good neighbor authority agreement projects. So what is that, you might ask? These projects um, under state law are, quote, uh, projects that increase timber harvest volume and, quote, maximize economic benefit to this state. Uh, You know, I think a lot of Oregonians would question if that's, uh, you know, uh, one of the top priorities of the legislature right now, considering that, you know, the wildfire season that we are are just now coming upon. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and and the there there is a mighty battle a brewing in Salem for those general fund dollars, um, and so uh, understanding uh, you know the 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 right way to spend it is is going to uh, have you know many many voices right. trying to advocate Absolutely. for that. Uh, can can you tell us uh, a little bit more about other stories that are in uh, the issue of Street Roots that's out today? Sure. Well, uh, today is excuse me April 21st. Of course, tomorrow is Earth Day. So we do have uh, an environmental theme, and uh, throughout the paper, certainly the the Native American uh, legislative issues, uh, but also our reporter Chris May is is wrote a feature piece about 
this piecemeal approach, basically. The Oregon legislature is taking now that cap-and-trade package, the cap-and-trade package that, um, you know, dominated the news was the big effort a couple of years ago, yep. uh, that has been basically, well, walked out to death. <laughs> yes. Um, so it, it runs down a lot of the bills that are being proposed to try to get Oregon back on track to meet uh, emission reduction targets. Uh, we missed our 2020 dar- targets. We're on track to miss 2035 mm-hmm. and 2050 goals by significant margins. Um, so we do a rundown of some of the proposals uh, to to try to address this and try to get, get us back on track. These are land use, transportation, construction, uh, energy emissions, all kinds of bills to to do, you know, what you know, this Herculean task of trying to get us back on track with our reductions, well, with our emission reductions, excuse me. Um, that's exciting that you've, that you've got an environmental issue out for street routes. Uh, Joanne Sewell, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us this morning. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. Thanks. Thanks to Joanne for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks. X-Ray. X-Ray.